morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone in the IAOMS community. We are pleased to be here with Dr. G.E. Ghali for what is the one of our fall uh, podcast series recordings, Lessons Learned from COVID-19 for the OMF Community. Dr. Ghali is the IOMS Education Chair and has been for the past several years. He is also an OMF surgeon practicing in Shreveport and is the Chancellor at LSU Health Sciences Center in Shreveport, Louisiana in the United States. Dr. Ghali, welcome and thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Deborah. It's my honor to be here. Great. You have got such an interesting story around COVID. And um, not only, you know, are you a surgeon and had to deal with um, patients and, and the surgical staff, et cetera, but you have an entire university that is sitting sort of at your feet that you are um, responsible for. And, um, and then you had COVID yourself. So uh, we can start maybe at the top and talk a little bit about you know, backing up to spring of 2020. When this all started unfolding, what were some of the first things you needed to think about, the first things that you needed to do, and um, you know, how did you set those wheels in motion? Right, um, well, those are all great questions. Uh, you know, uh, it's not like anyone really has a lot of experience with COVID, uh, you know, going into this. Uh, it's been, gosh, uh, a uh, hundred years since we've had a, a pandemic uh, in in the U.S. Uh, like COVID, uh, and you got to remember, you know, back a hundred years ago, <laughs> you know, uh, airplanes were pretty scarce. People weren't traveling with the frequency. Uh, uh, nowadays, uh, there's probably several cars per family. Back then, you know, maybe one car for every four or five families. Uh, so people get around a lot easier. The virus viruses like these are able to travel quite easily. Uh, so I think it's kind of apples and oranges trying to compare this to other pandemics and other situations. But clearly, uh, there was an there was an urgency and 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 an and an emergency. Uh, in in the U.S. that really had to be dealt with, and it being a novel novel virus, we really didn't know a lot about how this virus acts, uh, how long it lasts, the the uh, effect of comorbidities uh, on on the virus, uh, you know how uh, how easily is it transmissible or or not. Uh, these were all things that we really didn't know a lot about. And it's not like it was present in other parts of the world for several years and we were able to study that and then it came here. It was a matter of, 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 of two or three months being in one part of the world before it, it, it got here to, to the U.S. So, you know, um, one of the big, one of the first things as a, as a, uh, as an oral surgeon I was worried about was, gosh, it, it must be, uh, you know, being an oral and maxillofacial surgeon is a pretty high risk job when it comes to uh, worrying about catching a virus that, that is shed in the nasal cavity, through the nasal cavity, or through the mouth, because that's where we are all the time. Uh, as a uh, chancellor of a university, I was uh, concerned uh, about uh, 
what about the students and the residents and the employees that we have? Nearly 6,000 employees here uh, and, and students and residents and fellows and faculty members. And, and how can we possibly keep everybody safe while we still try to uh, do our three-pronged mission of, of, uh, of clinical care and, and research and, and, and education. So it was really uh, uh, kind of on-the-job training, you know, learning, right. learning how to do this. Uh, fortunately, uh, we have a great uh, governor here in, in, in Louisiana, and he uh, was uh, very open-minded about uh, some of the ideas that we had, and he worked alongside uh, us and in trying to develop uh, best uh, uh, practices and best strategies to help uh, mitigate the spread of, of this virus. Uh, and again, sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. Uh, but he really helped us out a lot in being able to develop uh, some new testing modalities and, and things like that. That's fantastic. Um, what a story. So what about, you know, the, the university piece of things? How did you, how did you think about the students and, and how did you mitigate risk right out of the gate when it was so new and so, um, you know, a bit of, yeah. a bit of a surprise in terms of how fast it came on? Right. By the time we, we began seeing cases here in, in Louisiana, we knew that it was a fairly contagious uh, virus and, and one that may be more, even more contagious than, than, than the common flu and probably is equally contagious as the common cold uh, in its tra transmission. Although we were seeing that, you know, unfortunately people were dying from this, which is not common with the uh, common cold. One of the first things that we did uh, when, uh, when, it, when it hit our region was to uh, take all the students out of their uh, clinical rotations and uh, put them sort of uh, let them go home basically and mm -hmm. if they were able to do any type of didactic work from home that's where they did it obviously the first two years of the medical school class were, were taking um, uh, normally would be in classroom stuff and so we converted all that to virtual and remote learning and uh, they're actually still doing it that way right now we're, we're still in phase two of reopening here in, in Louisiana so uh, we have restrictions on more than 50 people gathering in, in any one area particularly indoors outdoors you may be able to get away with a little more than that so as a result of a class of nearly 200 students there's no way we can put them really together um, mm -hmm. and and maintain social distancing and you know certainly you can wear masks and things like that so for the first two years of the medical school class is is basically virtual the uh, immediately we we cut off the clinical rotations till we could figure out we knew that this was contagious, but we didn't know how contagious it was. And then also early on in the process, uh, all over the world, people were beginning to use masks and, and uh, what, what, what everyone was calling PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, you know, goggles and masks and shields and gloves and gowns and things like that. And, and clearly, very quickly, um, there there was a shortage that was created of the PPE. 
So we really didn't want to have uh, the students exposed to situations where there may be a shortage of PPE. We, we, we removed them from their clinical rotations at that point. We've since resumed that. Uh, you know, they were off clinical rotations for about two, two and a half months. We brought them back and now they've re- resumed clinical rotations, uh, but we still try to keep them away from the uh, COVID patients because they're, they're the least experienced of the people on the healthcare team. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, they're, the mo- they're the ones most likely to become exposed uh, just because of, of errors in, in judgment or just lack of, of, of experience. Uh, um, so the biggest issue was really finding out a way to protect all of the uh, students, uh, faculty, residents, and staff. And uh, once uh, we begin to go through a period of, of rationing of the PPE and then the PPE uh, at the federal level was, was being uh, produced uh, uh, in, in adequate, more adequate amounts, uh, that became less of an issue. Um, and, but that was the, the biggest issue at that point was trying to deal with a, a paucity of, of PPE initially. Um, yes. And it, if I'm remembering correctly, at one point you were, really early on, I think, you were taking patients from uh, New Orleans. Is that right? That that you all were serving as sort of overflow capacity? Right. And, and well, what, what we were doing, uh, Deborah, was we were actually sending our doctors to New Orleans. Ah, so the, okay. the, the, uh, some, of the, some of the doctors there in, uh, in New Orleans were, were becoming ill. Uh, oh. from COVID, so they themselves could not uh, participate in, in clinical care. And at that time, uh, early on in the pandemic, it was really unclear th- uh, through the CDC guidelines as to what what would you do with a healthcare provider? You know, it, it, at one point they said, gosh, you know, if the, if, if the healthcare provider tests positive and, and they're basically asymptomatic, uh, they can go for two or three days with no fever, then they can put an N- N95 mask on and then they can go back to, to work. Um, then uh, the guidelines changed a little bit sort of mid-pandemic mid, mid uh, in the late spring, uh, early summer. Uh, the CDC came back and said, well, gosh, no, uh, if they become, if they test positive, um, whether they're symptomatic or not, they need to be quarantined for 10 days. And then they, some people said two weeks, some people said 10, uh, 10 days. So things kind of, and, and that's not unusual because this is a new virus and yeah. we just really don't know. Uh, you know, we, we've, Early on, we did not know what the incubation period exactly was. Uh, some people said it was two or three days. Well, ultimately, it can be anywhere from two days before the presentation of symptoms to up to 14 days after. So that whole range of, of two weeks there is, is a potential period of time, whether you're symptomatic or not, that you could be spreading the virus to other people and not even knowing it. In all likelihood, the, the more symptomatic you are, the more likely you are to spread the virus. But still, in asymptomatic situations, particularly in children, they, they can be spreading the virus. So there was a lot of unknowns back then. And I'm not saying that they 100% have been answered now, but mm-hmm. certainly we've, we've come a long way um, in, in, in the last six months understanding this, this disease. Thank you. Um, what about your staff as you, um, you know, as you were looking at what you needed to do and how long you needed to do it for. 
Um, how did you handle the staff team that supports you and supports LSU Health Services? Uh, uh, so your question about the staff team on the oral, oral and maxillofacial surgery side or, or on the actual university side specific, uh, you know, as a whole, university as a whole or just oral and maxillofacial University surgery? as a whole and, and probably both, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so what, what we did, uh, you know, it, it was evident that a majority of the patients that weren't doing so well with this virus uh, were, were, or the individuals that were doing so well with this virus, the overwhelming number of those were patients that were either immunosuppressed or had uh, other medical comorbidities. So what we did basically early on was we said anyone that can work from home needs to work from home. And I'm not talking about the physicians because obviously yeah. they can't work from home. Right. Uh, although there are some physicians that were uh, also immunosuppressed. I mean, physicians oh. get sick too. Yeah, and physicians right. can be immunosuppressed. A lot of those physicians, we uh, changed their job description temporarily and put mm. them in uh, telemedicine. So they could, ah. they could be in a, in, a, in, a, in a protected environment and um, uh, still do, you know, uh, treatment of patients. Uh, obviously, you can't take a gallbladder out uh, right. you know, re remotely, but you can certainly uh, evaluate a patient uh, maybe from a neurologic standpoint, from a clinical standpoint, things like that. So there's certain things. So telemedicine really uh, had a big bang with, with, this, uh, uh, with this process of, of COVID-19. Uh, so if anyone uh, that, you know, we don't want to say non-essential, but we say individuals that were not directly involved in patient care, we basically made all those people quarantined to home or just not quarantine, but go home and stay uh -huh. home and, and stay together with their families and work remotely if, if possible. Those that couldn't work remotely, uh, we, we kept on campus here. Uh, we, we, we created through uh, uh, our, our uh, virology department what we call an EVT lab, and that's an emerging viral threat lab. Very sophisticated lab that we created with the help of the uh, state uh, government through the governor's office and with the uh, federal government. And this lab is a very high output, uh, quick turnaround, uh, uh, doing uh, RT-PCR tests, a reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction tests uh, to look at viral particles in nasal swabs or in saliva or, hmm. or, or in whatever. We also do antibody testing through that lab. So what we were able to do in a period of about 10 days was test every single uh, employee, uh, resident, uh, student, uh, not so much the students early on, residents, fellows, faculty, and employees that had to be on campus, we ended up testing everybody uh, to, oh. get, to get a baseline test. And for the first month or two of the, uh, uh, that we stood up our lab, we were able to do testing once a week for all of those individuals to kind of monitor them. Once we got a better feel for their potential for exposure based upon mm -hmm. what type of jobs they had, then we either uh, continued that testing or we came off of it and said, okay, we don't need to test you unless you become symptomatic. People that were in a high risk group, <clears throat> that would include oral and maxillofacial surgeons, ENT doctors, anesthesiologists, GI mm -hmm. doctors, uh, 
you know, pulmonologists, people like that <clears throat> that are in high risk groups, those individuals we tested on a regular basis. And so these are some of the, some of the things that we put in. We also, um, uh, we also took a campus with 6,000 people that normally has a couple of hundred entrances into each building. Mm-hmm. And, and restricted it to only one entrance in each building. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that allowed us to kind of funnel everything in. We did temperature checks and, and, and symptom checks on, on everybody. And then uh, once we took their temperature, if they had a fever, they had to go get tested. Uh, if, they, if they didn't have a fever, we would put a little tag on them on their, on their shirt or on their badge saying that they had their temperature checked and each day there'd be a different color uh, Ah. uh, tag. And that way uh, no one was coming into the hospital. We also restricted access into the hospital for anyone, any uh, family members of patients, unless the patient unfortunately was in a situation where they were end of end of life and they were about to, to, to die or something like that. Uh, But if you were going to have any kind of surgery or anything in the hospital, it was only the patient that was allowed in. We've sort of relaxed that a little bit as, mm-hmm. as we've been able to plateau and see a drop in cases. Also, in order to create uh, an adequate amount of bed space and operating room space and, and to manage our ventilators appropriately, for a period of about a month, month and a half, probably about six to eight weeks, we uh, restricted any elective surgeries. So it was only urgent, uh, urgent and, and emergent or emergency type of procedures that were done. That, that helped preserve the PPE, that helped preserve beds, that helped preserve ventilator capacity. Uh, and uh, so certainly many of the hospitals saw a reduction in their revenue during that period of time. Right. And that's something that we're having to deal with. And the federal government is helping uh, provide some funds to counteract that as well. Uh, but, th- but I think that that did help tremendously uh, early to mid uh, pandemic. And when you say elective surgery, so even if it's a, a cancer diagnosis, but it's a scheduled rather than an emergency situation, is that, was that also on hold or? Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's, that's a good question. Uh, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword. If you wait too long on that kind of stuff, or if, or if you create uh, such a hysteria in society that, well, gosh, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm just going to stay home. I don't want to go get my normal colonoscopy done right. or, or my court, you know, my, my normal GI done or whatever, whatever my heart cath done that I'm supposed to have or, my stress test, it's kind of a double-edged sword because then it creates a situation where, where, um, uh, you know, you're going to see a rise in cancer because the normal screenings right. aren't being done and things like that. So it is sort of a bit of a double-edged sword. I think acutely it worked well, but, but we are, you know, hospitals are in a situation now where a hospital is not a place you're going to catch COVID. Right. COVID is going to be caught in gatherings and in, in, in congregate settings like a bar, like a party, yeah. uh, you know, th- things like that. Um, you know, restaurants, uh, not, not, not as common uh, as you would say in, in, in a bar, you know, where mm-hmm. you, know, you go to a bar basically to hang out and, and right. socialize and things like right. that and drink, you take your masks off and you're, and there you go. You, you know, you, you, you have the exposure. So, yeah. 
So what about this fall now? You are probably welcoming a lot of students back to campus or is it remote for the most part? Right. Or what well, are you? Well, right, right now we're still remote uh, and okay. uh, we're, we're waiting uh, until we can get to at least phase three. Uh, okay. before we can think about bringing uh, students uh, back on campus. There's some selective activities that, that we do. Uh, you know, for example, we had a new medical school class start, and the reality is at least two-thirds of that medical school class has never been on our campus before. Mm, because right. they, when, they, when they interviewed in the, in the, in the early springtime, uh, that was done virtual as well because the pandemic was, was already there. So we felt that it was important to get them together here on campus. So what we did with the 200 students is we divided them into four groups of 50 and we did a uh, um, sort of an, a, a orientation day that was mm -hmm. done, you know, and they were sitting, you know, three seats apart and everything else. Well, despite that 10% of the class still ended up, coming back positive after that after that oh, week. Oh wow. And so there's always going to be some of that 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 sure. occurs because it's hard, you know, the whole purpose of that is to, for people to get to know each other and, and right now unfortunately that's that's a little bit difficult. Difficult, yeah. So what about you? You also contracted COVID. And yeah. um you're probably one of the few people that we're interviewing that actually um has been through COVID. So can you tell us what that was like? Do you feel like you contracted it was it in clinic? Was it through a patient? Was it in another environment? Or are you even able to pinpoint that? And then what was I, I, I'm not really, I'm not really able to pinpoint where it came from. I, I, uh, you know, it, it could have come from a patient. Uh, uh, it could have come. It's, it's not likely that it was a patient, say in the operating room or something. It was more likely sure. a patient uh, uh, in clinic. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you know, I wear a mask. Uh, the patients wear a mask. But again, I'm not a podiatrist or a, or a, or a, or a uh, you know, dermatologist where I can look at people's skin without taking the mask off. I'm yeah. an oral surgeon. So I, gotta, I have to get them to take their mask off for me to do an exam on them. And, and that's where that, that, that risk occurs, even though I'm wearing a mask, which does have impart some protection to me. It, it mostly imparts protection to others. Yeah. And so when they take their mask off, then I would get prone. I'm not saying that's where it happened, but you know, it certainly could have, or I could have got it from one of my kids, you know, yeah. it, it, you yeah. know, it could have, you know, it's really, it's really super, super hard to know exactly, exactly where I, I, I caught it from. And did you have symptoms? Is that what prompted you to, to realize that you had COVID? Yeah, I, I developed a, a cough. And, uh, and I thought it was probably allergies and that, that cough was on a, oh gosh, probably on a, on a, on a Friday. And then, uh, on, no, I'm sorry. It was on a Saturday and, uh, on, I took some allergy medicine. I thought, well, this is just allergies or something. Cause I didn't feel bad at all. And then, uh, by early in the morning, like four o'clock in the morning on Sunday, the next day I woke up and I thought, boy, I have a fever. Mm. So I went and took my temperature and it was 102. Mm -hmm. And I said, ah, come on, it can't be. And, it, you know, this, this, this can't be what it is. So I reached out to our testing team and they did one of the rapid tests on me and, and it came back positive. And, um, so then because I happened to be on a medication that also immunosuppresses me, uh, you know, for, a, for a GI issue that I have, 
my doctors felt that it was really important that I go ahead and start on, on something and not wait for it to get worse. See, the biggest thing that, that, that people get into trouble when they wait four or five days thinking that they're going to get better and they're, they just try to kind of nurse it like, like a cold. Right. Uh, you know, you have to be pretty aggressive uh, w- with this, particularly if you have any comorbidities or if you have, uh, if, or if you're potentially immunosuppressed like, like I am. So I quickly got remdesivir and then uh, uh, five doses of remdesivir. They put me in the hospital and uh, I was in the hospital for four and a half days. Mm. I got the rem- I got the remdesivir, five doses, and then I got uh, a dose of convalescent plasma as well. Oh, interesting. And then did you, how did you feel after that? Were you, I, I know. Oh boy. I mean, within, within 24 hours of getting the convalescent plasma, I feel great. Is that right? I felt great. And, and, and almost to the, I mean, I've had regular viruses before that have just, you know, killed me, you know, uh, severely where I was in bed for like three or four days. And this, I felt much, much better just after 24 hours uh, with, with the remdesivir. And then the convalescent plasma sort of bridged me between the time that I didn't have antibodies. It takes about 10, 10 to 14 days to really start developing a, a good amount of antibodies, you know, quantitatively. Yeah. And uh, whether they work qualitatively or not is another story, but at least quantitatively it takes seven to 10 days or so to get your antibodies kicked in. And so they gave me a dose of convalescent plasma to provide me some antibodies until my own antibodies kicked in. Okay. And you feel great today? You feel back to normal? I feel great. Yeah. I feel pretty much back to normal. Oh, that's fantastic. Did any of your family happen to also be stricken with COVID? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, my, my wife ended up testing positive and so did uh, one of my three girls. Oh. And neither one of them had any significant symptoms. Uh, uh, and uh, the first time we tested them, they were negative. And second time we tested them, they were, they, they were positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, uh, they subsequently developed some change in their ability to smell and taste. Yeah. And then that, that lasted, uh, maybe a week or so. And then, uh, and then, and then everything came back. They didn't require, they're not on any, they weren't sick enough or on any immunosuppressive. They weren't sure. immunosuppressed in order to get the treatment that I ended up getting. Sure. Well, that's, um, an interesting story, an interesting personal story. And then you have um, a a really interesting professional story. And what I would love to just end this podcast with is, um, you know, from where you sit and the fact that we're not completely out of the woods yet on COVID, what advice or, um, you know, what lessons learned might you have that you can share with the IOMS world community? Well, I mean, I, I would just share that I don't think this is going to be the last virus that, that comes around like this. I think it's, it's going to be something that, that we have to be prepared for uh, in the U.S. and really throughout the world. I mean, uh, you know, all countries need to be prepared for this. I mean, this is the, the, uh, the new nuclear threat is really these, these viruses. And people have talked about this for quite a while. Uh, and, uh uh, you know, I think that that we're better equipped now than, than we were before, but we're still not as equipped as, as, as we really need to be. And, and I think that applies really for, for, for all countries. I think that um, certainly uh, 
I'm very optimistic that there'll be a, a, a vaccine that, that comes around. And, you know, like all vaccines, they're not going to be perfect, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and some people aren't going to want to take the vaccines. I mean, I, you, right. know, uh, you know, if you've read anything in the literature here recently, and, and I know many of, you, many of you have, you can see that there's been some resistance to people taking, say, the measles vaccine. Right. You know, uh, and and as a result of that, there's been an uptick in, in measles uh, in certain places around the world. And so this is going to be really no, no different. It's going to require a lot of compliance. I would ask the oral surgeons around the world to be very patient understand that uh, our specialty is at, at a high risk just because of the exposure. I mean, we're at high risk to really anything. Uh, we should probably always wear a mask uh, when we examine patients, uh, not, not just in the operating room, but, uh, uh, you know, the mask is probably more important than, 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 than wearing gloves, to be honest with you. Uh, hand washing uh, is, is critically important. Uh, and, and just understanding a little bit about the disease process and, and the fact that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the folks that have the comorbidities are the, one that, the ones that are going to do worse with this disease process. But again, we are seeing issues in children as well. And the interesting thing about COVID is really the fact that even though it may not uh, uh, injure children to the extent that that they that they die like we're seeing in some of the uh, older folks with uh, that are immunosuppressed or that have comorbidities is that there are some long-term sequela of this virus that we just don't completely understand right now so right. i think the efforts around the world of, of trying to 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 get a vaccine is critical in the meantime we socially distance we wash our hands we, we wear a mask and we just be logical about, about what and, and, and how we do things. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Ghali. I know your time is precious. We appreciate you being with us here today and sharing your wisdom with the IOMS community around the world. Thank you, Deborah. It's my honor. And I want to say hello to all my friends out there. Thanks, Dr. Ghali. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcasts by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.